right, that's enough, Duke. <laughs> I'm only kidding. It's two minutes past the hour of six o'clock. Good evening. Welcome. This is the Mark Riley Show. Heard each and every Wednesday at this particular time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Progressive Radio Network. Glad you're with us. Glad to be here. And, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to keep it in the tradition of the programs that are heard here on PRN. Kind of make you think just a little bit. Scratch your heads maybe just a little bit. Jason Taubenfeld on the board, keeping us uh, locked in, as it were. And uh, we're going to start out with a couple of people who have passed from our midst, who were icons in their given field. One in fashion, one in journalism. Oscar de la Renta passed away early this week at the age of 82. Uh, A guy who kind of defined sophistication in fashion. Now, I don't know anybody. Hey, Jason, you know anybody owns an Oscar de la Renta gown or whatever? Because I don't. I don't know anybody that, uh, you know, had that kind of dough. But, I, I mean, I've seen people in Oscar de la Renta outfits. And I think I may have gone to a couple of clubs he used to frequent back in the day. Um, from what I can gather, really, really nice guy. Uh, had a place, I think, up uh, where I used to go to school. Actually, he built it after I went to school because I went to school there when dinosaurs roamed the earth. But, uh, you know, a, a really big kind of palatial sort of place up in, uh, up in rural Connecticut. The other person we lost, Ben Bradley, the man who changed the course of journalism in this country some 40-some-odd years ago when he presided over the virtual impeachment and eventual resignation of an American president. He was the editor at the Washington Post, and he was encouraged by publisher Catherine Graham to go after the news that uh, uh, Carl, uh, <laughs> Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein had been developing, story that they had been developing about this Watergate scandal thing, and, you know... Against the grain of what was then the D.C. norm, Ben Bradley said, go ahead. Go where it takes you. And they did. So Ben Bradley, we lost at the age of 93 years old. So how we do things here is kind of like this. We have a group of top stories picked by moi. We have a lead story with a really great guest, so you don't want to miss him. And then we have a segment called To the Ridiculous, which is the last segment of the show, which just talks about a ridiculous story. Not thought-provoking, just plain ridiculous. Now, one of, and I don't do the top story. I don't do them alphabetically. I don't really even do them in order of importance. I just kind of do them based on when they come across my desk or my purview or my computer or whatever. This one I find very interesting. Hey, Jason, you notice how they're not talking so much about the Ukraine anymore? It's, it, it's, it's gone. Gone. You know why it's gone? Let me explain this. This is going to take a little explanation, but I'm here to give it to you. There's a report from some pretty credible sources that the Ukrainian government... Now, what you have to understand is, as far as the Americans are concerned, the Ukrainian government, good. 
the Ukrainian rebels who are supposedly aligned with the Russian government, bad. That's not like Syria, where the government, bad, and the rebels, good. Yeah, you, you can't tell these different scenarios without a scorecard. I just want you all to know that. All right, so the Ukrainian government, who we support, according to a relatively credible report, fired cluster bombs into Donetsk. And uh, according to the New York Times, they unleashed a weapon banned in much of the world into a rebel-held city with a peacetime population of more than a million people. Sites where the rockets fell on the city on October 2nd and October 5th. So this is fairly recent. And it is subsequent to kind of like a, a ceasefire peace treaty that was signed by both sides. The attacks wounded at least six, killed one person, a Swiss employee of the International Red Cross based in Donetsk. Now, you know, the New York Times likes to hedge their bets. They don't want to say, hey, the people we're backing are doing something, hmm, how best to put this, ugly. But that's what this report says. Now, what happens with cluster bombs is that they shower small bomblets around a pretty large area. And if it's true, this is what the Russians have been saying all along. Imagine that. They're right and we're wrong on this? Uh, Senior arms researcher at Human Rights Watch, Mark Hisney, says, quote, it's pretty clear. The cluster munitions are being used indiscriminately in populated areas, particularly in attacks in early October in Donetsk City. The military logic behind these attacks is not apparent, and these attacks should stop because they put too many civilians at risk. Now, I didn't know that the Ukrainian military has press officers, but apparently they do. They deny their troops had used the cluster weapons and said the rocket strikes against Donetsk should be investigated once it was safe to do so. And, of course, they say, well, you know, the Ruskies may have gotten them, gotten this stuff to some of the rebels, blah, 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 blah. Human Rights Watch says that the weapons have been used against population centers in eastern Ukraine at least 12 times during this conflict and possibly many more. So the Ukrainian government, who we support, has been cluster bombing its own people. That's what this report says. Now, you know, uh, never having been to the Ukraine, never having, you know, sat down and had an intense political discussion with a Ukrainian, I can't say the report is valid, just, right, wrong. I don't know. But I can tell you it ought to lead to some questions. And, and one of the things it ought to lead to is the question of why the Ukraine which was like front burner. Hey, Jason, what was that, three months ago? Yeah, three months ago, front burner. Now, no mas, not so much. Although, you know, this time story, pretty, pretty painstaking, pretty thorough, and pretty lengthy, to be honest with you. Closer to home, when I say home, I'm talking about right here in the good old USA, and specifically in New York where we happen to be broadcasting from. Run up or west, yo! Anyway, let me stop acting like a 20-year-old when I'm nowhere near sane. There's a Republican guy who's running for governor 
of New York State. And, and mind you, I, and, and you'll this will become more apparent when we talk to our guests later on. I, in my old age, am less partisan than I used to be as a younger person. I vote a certain way, but that doesn't mean I am blind to the foibles of the of the party that I may align myself with on a regular basis. But in this case, the guy that said this is a Republican, a guy named Rob Astorino. And he said, oh, and there have been many others who have said the same thing, but this guy would be governor of New York State. Flights carrying passengers from Ebola-stricken nations in West Africa should be turned away from New York airports. Turned away from New York airports. Now, understand, folks, what that means. Because, see, people are panicked enough. You know, uh, the Liberian community on Staten Island here, which, by the way, is the biggest Liberian community in the United States, maybe in the world outside of Liberia. I mean, they've kind of like had to hunker down because people look at them and they say, oh, my God, Ebola, Ebola, Ebola. Here's the problem. Astorino is calling for this despite the fact that it means that Americans who may have gone to West Africa to try and stem the tide of the virus could not return. They would become stateless until Rob Astorino said it was cool. That's his proposal. And by the way, he wants the state to do something about this, which is why it should be in the To the Ridiculous segment, because the state can't do anything. The state doesn't shut airports. States don't ban flights. The feds do. Now, the feds have, have, you know, talked about uh, uh, kind of shunting people from West Africa to about five airports across the country where people can be monitored and quarantined, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not the same as saying don't land here. All right. Uh, Astorino says, quote, we can't just keep our heads in the sand and pretend it is not happening. Nobody's putting their, I don't know of anybody that's put their heads in the sand and pretend it's not happening. But I think the, the solution here, and we talked with a guest last week from Yale University about the actual efficacy, the health and science efficacy of banning flights from West Africa or from wherever, for that matter. And uh, she said that it's not going to solve the problem. It will not solve the problem. How will they know, for example, if somebody didn't come from a second or third or fourth country? All right, you ban the flights in the States, you go to Budapest, and you change planes, and you go to Stockholm, and you change planes, and you head on over. And what, if they see West, uh, West if they see Sierra Leone or Liberia, Stamped on somebody's passport. No, no, you can't come here. Or, I mean, logically speaking, it would be almost impossible to ban the flights that, that, that Astorino's talking about. Almost impossible. I guess not completely impossible because he says this with a straight face and he wants to be governor. Now, he's down 21 points in the polls to Andrew Cuomo. So, man. I'll leave it to you. 
The New York Times had an editorial, and in a few minutes we'll be talking to a very special guest. I'm not going to tell you who he is. You know, you've heard his name before. He's been on television, been on radio. I've interviewed him any number of times. Brilliant, brilliant mind. But at any rate, before we get to that, I do want to have one little coda to the Ebola thing. All right. The Cubans, and this is a New York Times editorial acknowledges this. The The Cubans, right? The headline of this editorial, Cuba's impressive role on Ebola. I'll repeat that. Cuba's impressive role on Ebola. Now, let me tell you why it's impressive. While we send troops who I guess... Hey, Jason, is their mission to shoot Ebola on site? Is it to uh, what? I don't know why we sent troops. okay? but we did. The Cubans sent doctors. (laughs) okay? the Cubans have sent doctors who have put themselves in harm's way. To try and deal with this epidemic where it is happening, where people are dying most frequently. And it's not on the tarmac of an American airport. It's in these countries. And the Cubans, the Cubans, our enemies, the ones you can't even buy. Well, never mind. I won't even say you can't even buy a Cuban cigar, but you can't legally. They're the ones that are stepping up. And it's not the first time, ladies and gentlemen. You may remember that Cuban doctors assumed the lead role in treating cholera patients after Haiti's earthquake in 2010. Some of them went back with cholera. But it didn't stop the Cubans from helping. They actually created a quick reaction medical corps and offered to send doctors to New Orleans in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. We didn't take them up on it. We probably should have. Quiet as it's kept, and I know most of you all probably aren't even aware of this. Cuba is one of the biggest partners with the United States in the interdiction of drugs in the Caribbean. See, because the Cubans don't play with drug dealers. They kill them. They found Castro one time found somebody in his government was dealing drugs, tried him, convicted him, executed him. Now, I'm not in favor of the death penalty. I'm not. But the Cubans don't play that. And quiet as it's kept, the Cubans have probably kept more drugs out of the noses and veins of American kids as any other jurisdiction outside this country. And I'm not even sure we're doing that great of a job. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we've got a very special guest. He is my good friend, and he is the Washington correspondent for The Nation magazine, He is the great John Nichols. John, how you doing, buddy? I am well, my friend. Good. And uh, I am am just delighted to be on with you. I don't don't, uh, hear your good voice as much as I'd like. Well, I I really appreciate you joining us this evening. And we're going to talk a little bit this evening about money and politics. We got an election coming up. We got one here in New York. We got them all over the country. People are speculating. Mm -hmm. There was an article in the New York Times the other day, John, that said essentially that if no Latinos voted Republican, Republicans would still control the House. Now, I don't know how they come up with this kind of stuff. <laughs> right. yeah. Look, I know you've got to be real careful about, you know, 
I, I know everybody's real excited about big data. Yeah. They're real excited that they got computers they can press a button and get a you know some sort of readout on. But <laughs> can I just offer a notion here? Please. There's no group that's universal, period. And um, this, you know, to play games like that, to kind of, you know, talk about you know who who's got the influence and who can call things. I think what they're really trying to say is an important thing, but it, it gets lost in in some of the dynamics there. What's really important and what's really tragic is that we have drawn the district lines from which we elect our U.S. Congress mm-hmm. in such horrible ways, such anti-democratic ways. That's small that, d democratic ways, right? Yeah. What ends up is you create a situation where many, many people are disempowered. Many, many people uh, cannot find their politics, their ideals reflected in our governance because they've been gerrymandered into a district where their votes don't matter much mm-hmm. or where their votes are definitional, but they've been kind of segmented off so that they're all stuck in one district. And you know, other countries don't do it that way. Other countries use proportional representation and a whole bunch of other models to try and get the closest reflection they can of the popular will. Do you know that, let me give you a sense here, Mark, Mm -hmm. if we had a clear reflection of the popular will in our congressional elections in 2012, well, you had more than a million more people vote for Democrats than Republicans Republicans for the House of Representatives. Yeah. We'd have a Democratic House of Representatives. Imagine how different the last two years would have been if you had Nancy Pelosi in charge of the House of Representatives rather than John Boehner. Excellent. And democracy would have given you that result. And so, you know, it's important to understand, yes, many people are disenfranchised. Many people are kind of drawn out of the process. Uh, but... That's not that's not a game. That's not something we calculate out, oh, well, these people, if they didn't even vote, it wouldn't matter, blah, blah, blah. No, that's a wake-up call. Absolutely. That's a demand us to get more engaged and to really address this crisis of gerrymandering. John Nichols is our guest, Washington correspondent for The Nation magazine. John, uh, there was a story in The Times that was headlined, How Billionaire Oligarchs Are Becoming Their mm-hmm. Own Political Parties. Not content to just kind of like pull the strings on uh you know on the two major parties they've kind of like created their own thing tell me a little bit about how that's going and how that happened well i mean the fact of the matter is that we tend to talk about politics on a radio show like this or on you know television or or basically in most newspaper magazine articles uh as if it, it was a uh, a sport with very, very clear rules, mm-hmm. that everything was done, you know, everybody played within the lines, everybody, you know, if, if their ball touches the net, they, they recognize that, you know. Mm-hmm. That's not how politics is really played if you're a rich guy. If you're a rich guy, if you're a group of rich people, what you do is you start to uh, interact with usually other rich people. You pool your money. It's a cooperative effort. The Koch brothers never do anything on their own. They have these secret meetings out in California where they get a bunch of lesser billionaires and millionaires together, and they all decide how they're gonna how they're gonna move on things. Mm-hmm. But then, what individuals do? One of the things they do that's really quite fascinating is they find a bunch of political consultants they want to work with, and they say to these consultants, "Hey, let's 
go into races all over this country as so-called independent expenditures, and let's define the races across this country. Let's become a political entity unto ourselves that decides who wins and who loses by the amount of money we flow in, and it also begins to shape the political party we may be more closely aligned with, and even sometimes define the opposition party. And so, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, it's because the way that they are playing politics, the way that the wealthy, the super wealthy play politics, is not worrying about, you know, this party or this candidate. That's, that's kind of old school. What they worry about is a transactional politics. And that's a, it's a multi, you know, kind of a too big a word to explain a very simple concept. Well, no, no, tell us about that, is, Yeah, it's a transaction. They go into politics to create a result that's good. It's like you go into the store. You, you go into the store, you got money in your pocket, you buy the things you want. Mm-hmm. They buy a, the politics they want. That's dangerous, the, though, isn't it? John, that's well, dangerous to, to American democracy. A little. Well, it's, it's the end of it, to be honest. You know, unless, unless it's exposed, challenged, and changed, uh, you end up with a situation where, uh, to give you an example, let me give you a really good example of how it works. We decide we're going to reform our health care system. Everybody in the world says, well, you know, you, wanna, you really want to make it a human right. You want to make health care right. You get the profit out of it, right? You move these private companies out of it, and you have a single-payer system. You have a, a system like our Medicare system, our Medicaid system, whereas the government you know, oversees it. You have maybe a private doctor and, and all that and all these separate hospitals, but at the core of it, the, the payment system is run to the government. It's like we do with Social Security as well. And the interesting thing of that is that um, it works really, really well. But what happens when we reformed... Uh, health care in the United States. Well, when we reformed health care in the United States, that idea was from the beginning officially off the table. Off the table. I knew you were going to say Everybody said, oh, that. we're not going to talk about that. That's, that's impossible. Now, is that impossible because Barack Obama and quite a few Democrats who at one time or another in their lives had spoken quite favorably about single-payer don't like the idea? No. It's because... There's so much money, so much special influence, so much pressure on our politics that even good people start to think it's impossible to do the right thing. Mm, Incredible. The billionaires start to change. They don't just change. It's not like they just buy a bad guy, right? They buy the process to such an extent that we start to refuse to do the things that we know we should do. And that's devastating because at the end of the day, People aren't stupid. They look at it and they go, well, why is this happening? This doesn't make any sense. Why, when you have a massive multinational oil company spill oil all over our Gulf of Mexico, despoiling that, that area, threatening the ecosystem of the entire region, why do you say to the company, oh, well, you can clean it up. We'll watch you. <laughs> why don't you say to that company, no, you have lost your franchise here. You can't do this. We're, we are sending in the Army Corps of Engineers. We're sending in whatever we've got. We're going to clean this up. We're going to make it exactly right. We're going to make you pay for it. Yeah. We'll present the bill when it's all done. But, you know, John, you, you mentioned something, and our guest is John Nichols, Washington correspondent for The Nation magazine. John, you mentioned something we were talking off air before, mm-hmm. you know, before today uh, about how 
these these uh, uh, oligarchs, these billionaires, don't just put money in to get a particular result. They also begin to dictate strategy, do they not? Without a doubt. That is a very big deal. I'm glad you brought it up, Mark, because this becomes a reality. What do billionaires like to do? They like to throw money in and get immediate results. And so they hire top consultants. They interact with some of the, the smartest political minds in the country. Unfortunately, quote-unquote, those smartest political minds tend to believe that television is the be-all and end-all of our politics, mm-hmm. and they have an almost religious faith in the negative commercial. The idea that you put a commercial on, you say the other guy or the other gal is so incredibly horrible that even their own supporters won't vote for them, and that somehow that's going to make the thing work. But by the nature of that process, it's all about telling people not to vote. It's all about dialing down the turnout. Now, whether you're a liberal billionaire or a conservative billionaire, and there are actually a couple liberals, Mm -hmm. uh, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, if you're playing that game of dialing down the vote through negative commercials, that is, at the end of the day, going to benefit the status quo, and it's more often than not going to benefit the Republican Party and more conservative politics because low turnout, disengaged electorate, as we well know, tends to skew to the right. Yeah. And so this becomes, as they dictate strategy, and I don't even think this is intentional. I'm not even sure that they all, you know, this is, this is just a byproduct of what they do. But they don't put the kind of energy into maintaining real old-school grassroots politics. And, you know, the genius of old-school grassroots politics is maybe it wasn't some rocket scientist or somebody with a computer doing it. Maybe it was just the lady down the street who used to come and knock on your door and say, hey, we're all going to go vote. Don't forget, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Now, when you X her out of the process and you say the grassroots neighborhood activists, the, the old school party infrastructure, the old school union infrastructure, that, that doesn't matter as much. Now we're, we're going to put all this money on TV. Well, you end up in a situation where you really do deconstruct the functional elements of our democracy. And I think it's very damaging. I think money in politics, my friend, Money in politics in and of itself, no matter what it's spent for, diminishes democracy. We are much better off when your grandma's coming knocking on my door, telling me, you know, listen, John Nichols, you better get to that polling place today. (laughs) We all vote. That matters a lot more than whether I'm influenced by some negative ad on TV. But now, John, have we come too far? Are we at a point now where we can't really go back to that anymore? Because Citizens United says... It, it, you know, it's a wide-open ball game that anybody mm-hmm. can contribute whatever they want to whomever they want, et cetera. And there's nothing in Citizens United that says that oligarchs cannot start dictating strategy and on the other side of an election dictate policy. So There sure is. And in fact, it basically says that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Far from banning it, it essentially empowers. But now, yeah. uh, what do you say to people? who look at this, and, and, you know, mind you, here in New York City, we only had a million-odd people vote uh, in the last election, uh, Uh contrasted with 2.69 million people who voted in 1950, for God's sake. Oh, I know. No, no, no. I see this all over the country. We have so diminished our political participation, and it's especially true in primaries. Yeah. Uh, Primaries across this country this year, with all this money flowing in, We've had in many states record low turnouts. 
in our primaries. This is, it's, it's unprecedented, and it's also very damaging. If we were doctors, you know, if we were doctors, we'd look at this and we'd say the patient is sick. Yeah, you know, very these, these results aren't working. And so, yeah, you ask, is there any way to, to fix this thing? Can we, can we do anything to make it right? My friend, it's a very simple answer. Yes, we can, and we're going to. We have to. Uh, we're going to have to amend the Constitution of the United States to say money isn't speech, corporations aren't people, citizens have a right to organize elections where the vote matters more than the dollar. We're going to restore uh, some semblance of order to our politics so we can have fair and free elections. And you say to me, well, Mr. Nichols, <laughs> that sounds overly optimistic. We never amended the Constitution before. It was handed down in stone to Michelle Bachman. <laughs> well, with all due respect, we've amended it dozens of times. The founders amended it ten times in the first four years. Then they amended it again when the vice president of the United States shot the secretary of the treasury. They decided they needed a new way to elect vice presidents. We amended it to give African Americans the vote after the Civil War. We amended it to give women the vote in 1920. We amended it to give 18 to 21-year-olds the vote so that if they got sent off to fight in a war, they might have some say about it. Mm -hmm. We amended it to get rid of the poll tax. We, we have amended the Constitution again and again to make our democracy function. And unless, Mark, you believe that we are dramatically less than our grandparents and our great-grandparents, that we don't, we don't have anything left in us, then we have to believe that just as it was not easy to get votes for and just as it wasn't easy to overturn the poll tax, to do all sorts of other very important, vital changes in our democracy to create an elected u.s senate mm. um it, it, if we can't do that then we cannot live up to our basic duty as americans because our job is to amend the constitution in our generation to make this thing work and so yeah it's going to be hard we're going to be up against the oligarchs we're going to be up against really rich people we're going to be up against entrenched power but i will just tell you mark 100 years ago 115 years ago in the gilded age they were oligarchs. It was worse. Yeah. A lot of entrenched power. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right about that. Have you seen the Koch brothers' ads lately, by the way? Yes, I have. You know, the, the warm, well, you cuddly, can't avoid them. diverse. You can't avoid them. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Well, and, you and, know what? Mm -hmm. Rich people always try to make themselves look soft and gentle, right? Yeah, that's true. But they didn't get that rich by being soft and gentle. No, they did it by busting unions and busting whatever else they had to do to get what they wanted. Mm -hmm. And by participating in a transactional politics yeah. where they put a lot of money in. But do you really do you really imagine that any rich person is going broke because they're putting so much money in because they believe so much in democracy? No. They're putting in just enough to get the quote unquote democracy that gives them a government that serves their needs. That's why we did Mark, think of the basic construct here. In last in the last year we had a great big rip-roaring debate about how much we were going to cut food stamps. Yeah, I know. How obscene <laughs> was that? <laughs> Come on. And we did have a great big rip-roaring debate about how much we were going to raise taxes on the Koch brothers. So you think of who, who's getting the, the, the benefit of this process. Is it the kid who's, who needs food stamps or needs you know, school lunch? Or is it the, the rich people that pour the money in? There was a poster uh, a few years back, it had a picture of a beautiful little girl, and she was uh, looking up at the camera, and she said, Mama, the rich man says I have to give up my lunch money because he doesn't want to pay taxes. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, this is what we're talking about. 
we are literally talking about a, a, a circumstance that is so absurd, that is so absurd that we will take money out of, out of programs for hungry kids to make sure that we don't raise taxes on billionaires who have so much money that they can pump hundreds of millions into political campaigns. John, you know, the thing that irks me about that more than anything else is that that little girl and the, the tens of thousands, if not millions, of little children around this country who may end up going to bed hungry mm-hmm. could be the ones that develop a cure for cancer, develop a cure for the common cold. All they, they, If they're fed and properly educated and given an opportunity at what we all call the American dream, they could change this country, for God's sake. Well, you just actually, you just hit on something really, really sharp there and really important. Because it, when we talk about this, it isn't just the immediate equation of a you know, rich guy gets what he wants, poor person doesn't get what they need. That's not the immediate equation. That's just the, the instant analysis. The deeper reality is, yeah, you start to shape a country where there isn't a meritocracy, where people don't rise based on on their skills or their knowledge, they, they rise based on their political connections, on the money that they've got. And the greatest of our founders, the wisest of our founders, was Tom Paine, who wrote Common Sense. And he devoted a huge portion of Common Sense to arguing against the monarchy, against the British crown, on the basis that generationally the British crown degenerated. That maybe once, you know, hundreds of years ago there had been some bold, great king, but you know, it seemed like each generation, the, the kings got, you know, more petty, more absurd, more self-absorbed. And you ended up in a situation where, you know, far from having the best and brightest in charge, you had some of the weakest and, and least inspired. <laughs> and, you know, Payne's argument was brilliant. It was part of what gave Americans the courage to revolt against the British Empire. Well, we ought to have a little bit of that same kind of thinking today. And that thinking ought to be that, yes, that 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 poor girl I once saw when I was driving down in Mississippi covering a campaign, walking alone up a country road with her backpack, walking home from school, and she was going, I saw her, she was, it was a long, long way up that hill. Yeah. You know, that little girl didn't have a school bus because somebody cut the funding, right? Mm-hmm. She was walking home from school. Well, what, how much better a country would we be if we gave her a hand, if we helped her out? Excellent. You know, we would be a better, stronger country, I guarantee it. John, we got to leave it there, man. But as always, it's a joy to talk with you. Please don't be a stranger. You just keep on doing what you're doing, and I'll, I'll keep cheering you on, brother. All right, man. You take care, brother. All right, man. Take Bye-bye. care. That is the great John Nichols, Washington correspondent for The Nation magazine. I know you, a lot of you all probably saw him or heard him on The Ed Schultz Show. I interviewed him umpteen times on my program when I was doing terrestrial radio because John is one of the most incisive progressive individuals I know. We're going to open up our phones to you, 888-874-4888. Okay, 888-874-4888. Somebody's been holding on for a minute. Fly has been holding on. Fly, good evening. How you doing? Is he there? Oh, I guess he left. Hey, Fly, if you're around, call back, man. 888-874-4888. I wonder if that's the Fly I knew from back in the day. I knew a couple of flies from back in the day. Jason, can we play a little music for a second? I'm going to collect my thoughts, and we're going to come back and talk about Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act, uh, why House Republicans alienate, quote, Hispanics, 
the death of Klinghoffer, and Mayor de Blasio makes a very interesting ruling that I'm sure greatly disappointed one of his friends. We'll be right back. Plum Blossom with your steak, huh? <laughs> it's coming up on 22 minutes before the hour of 7 o'clock, and we're going to make the most of the last 22 minutes we've got. We've got Fly from Jersey. Is this Fly or is this Sly from Jersey? It's Sly from Jersey, Mark. Sly, how you doing, buddy? How's it going? I'm doing, doing all right. I'm surviving, man. How you been? I can't complain. I can't complain. Uh, you know, a couple of things. Uh, I saw your man, George Gresham, yesterday. Uh, oh, yeah. Yes, uh, 1199 had a big... Uh, symposium on Ebola. Ah, oh, wow, that's right. Five, yeah, yeah. At the Javits Center, about, 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 about approximately about 5,000 showed up. Wow. And and, and uh, they had it simulcast around to their uh, other unions around the country. So that covered all their membership. And they really discussed uh, Ebola, the effects. Uh, they also had uh, CDC, the U.S. Uh, Public Health Service. They're and catching it now, Sly. The huh? CDC is catching all kinds of hell. Yeah, but you know, there's a lot of information out there. There was, it was, it was. This was a, a three-hour uh, symposium, and it was a demonstration for the, especially the practitioners in the health field, mm-hmm. uh, in regards to how they protect themselves and demonstration how to wear the gowns correctly and everything else. And the people were just in, very much interested. They were getting a lot of information. Because uh, and, and and it covered all healthcare workers from the security guard in the hospital to the doctor, and there was a lot of people in that audience, and they were very uh, interested with the information that was given. Now, Sly, yeah. let me ask you a question: Do you think that those folks that that uh, saw and heard those presentations will be less nervous about dealing with people who may not even have Ebola? But may be quarantined, or may, or or they may be like suspicious or nervous about whether or not they're sick. Well, the virus itself is very contagious. But but check this out: the guy that showed up in the hospital in Dallas, Eric Duncan. He was, yes, he was sent home from the hospital, and he was around his family members all that time. None of those family members tested positive for Ebola. Hmm. Okay, and mind you, the nurse caught caught it there, but he was around his family members for days. And Ebola is spread through, you know, you could sneeze, and and, and, and yeah, you and, would be exposed. Yeah, would be exposed. So here's a guy that's uh, around his family. You know, everybody doesn't catch a virus. You know, they they suggest that people now go get their flu shots uh, cause the Ebola. I just got mine yesterday. Mm, you know. <laughs> But, uh, like, you, you brought out the fact that there's only three countries in Africa that Ebola is showing up as. And what people don't know is that Ebola was in Nigeria before. 
Yeah. And they, were, they, they effectively eradicated the virus inside Nigeria. Yeah. So yeah. it can be eradicated. And I, I think the whole world slept on what was happening in Africa. Except uh, the Cubans. The Cubans didn't sleep it. Well, the Cubans never have You know, like the Cubans were always involved in Africa, in the Congo, and every other place. Angola. You Angola. Name the Cubans also do a lot in the Caribbean in regards to getting, you know, people, tra- people trained as doctors and everything else like that. They step up where we'd step down yeah. in, in, in that uh, aspect. But we could have done more. We could have done, uh, you know, when this thing started showing its ugly head in those countries, we could have probably... Uh, done something to eradicate though. But now, Sly, let me ask you this, because this this is what really kind of gets my goat. We send troops, the Cubans send doctors. What's up with that? We got this militaristic that every, every uh, conflict or any problem requires the military involved. Now, the fact of the matter is the military does have medical personnel. The, oh, yeah, the US, no doubt. The U.S. Public Health Service is an arm of the military. Okay, so those people are officers in the military, believe it or not. We had a captain from the U.S. Public Health Service do the demonstration yesterday. Okay. So is there a task for the military? Yes, but if you're sending a message that you're sending the military, you've got to kind of spell out what exactly they're going to be there. Well, you've got to have these troops down on the ground or these medical personnel or these uh, soldiers that you know that are just coming down to for whatever uh, reason. Well, you know you can't yeah. shoot Ebola, so yeah, uh, you know exactly. So I don't, I don't know if if the you got a messaging problem in in regards to uh, what they want to do. I just think there could have been a little more coordination among the other nations. You know, everything is not America's problem. No, you know, no, you're right. And, and and so they could have stepped up also when they started seeing Ebola show up in Liberia, you know, Sierra Leone. I feel know. bad for those people on Staten Island, man. I mean, the, you know, that's the largest uh, uh, concentration of Liberians outside of Liberia. Yeah, but you know what happens anytime uh, a disease shows up, you you basically and it shows up in a group of people, but. They were claiming AIDS were, were being spread by Haitians one time. I know, I know. You know so you know, and and that was false. So you know, you got somebody who has a virus. This virus seems to uh, prevail in a tropical climate such as Africa. The problem is that a lot of people do travel. You know, a lot of Americans are ignorant how big Africa is. Oh okay? yeah, yeah. You know, they don't realize from the tip of Africa to the to the to the other tip. It will take you 20 hours on a plane to travel. Yeah. They don't know. No. They don't realize that the continents of U.S., China, India, Japan, uh, Western and Eastern Europe could fit in the continent of Africa. All those countries could fit inside of the country of Africa. Africa. Africa is a very big place. You're talking about a very small area of Africa that is infected with the Ebola virus. Very true. Got to run, Sly, man, but always great to talk with you. It's such okay. a pleasure, all right? All right. We okay. talk again soon. Okay, take care, Mom. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Our good friend Harriet from Bayside, Queens, is on the line. Hi, Harriet. Hi. Hi. Uh, you were uh, interviewing Bob uh, John Nichols before. Yes, ma'am. I was re- I'm now reading a book uh, called All the Truth is Out. 
and by uh, Matt Bai. And there's an, another reason why uh, so few people vote. This, tell tell this me why. Subtitle is, uh, is uh, the tabloidization of American politics. And oh, it's all I, yeah, about, yeah. All about the Gary Hart story. Oh, from back in '88. Yeah, I mean, no, um, no reporter ever asked a candidate that question, and he should have said, "It's none of your business. My private life is none of your business," and that's an inappropriate question. But would it have stopped there, Harriet? I mean, would if Gary Hart had taken that stand in '88? Are yeah. you sure? That all of the political hijinks and, and, and exposure of people's private lives that we see now wouldn't have happened? I think, it, I think uh, yes. Really? Yeah. And you know who would be mayor of New York today. No, who? Anthony Weiner. Oh, he said he's done with politics. I saw that somewhere uh, yesterday. Yeah, he's done with politics because of... The tabloidization of politics. He had some he really good ideas, without... Anthony Weiner. He had some really good ideas. He's, yeah. But Harry, you know, he, he made some stupid judgments. He knew going in that America had become tabloidized, for want of a better term. And, and he should have known better than to do what he did. Oh, I want to say something else. Yes, ma'am. You were talking about Ebola. And the thing is, we pay so much attention to Ebola and not enough attention to the enterovirus, which killed children in the Northeast. Yeah, I think in Jersey, was it one or two children that were killed? Well, so far, one little child. Yeah. No, you're right. Uh, We're not paying enough attention to that. Um, Not at all. And and I don't know why that is. I mean, uh, maybe it's because it's homegrown and it's not being brought in here from someplace else. I don't know. That's for sure. One more thing, congratulations to the youngest Nobel Peace Prize winner. Oh, that young lady from Pakistan. Malala Yousafzai. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant young lady. Uh, Yeah, I'm brave. Brave, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. Now, uh, Harriet, I have to ask you this because we talked about it before. Before I let you go, the death of Klinghoffer premiered, what was it, yesterday or Monday? Yesterday. uh, I forget which day. Yeah. Uh, It may have been Monday. Uh, there were like 500 people outside. Rudy Giuliani led a huge demonstration. Uh, I was not there. But what's interesting is uh, the, the people who reviewed the opera were overwhelmingly positive about it. I was stunned by that. On. Given the controversy. People, uh, w- when they talked about the elements of the opera itself, and, and I got to tell you, I don't know from opera. I don't listen to it. I, don't, you I know, do. You do. Remember, I once told you that I once upon a time wanted to be an opera singer. An opera singer. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, I, I mean, you know, and Giuliani is an opera buff. Yes. And his thing was it was historically inaccurate. But I, I didn't know that there was any responsibility uh, in terms of opera to be historically accurate. I mean. Uh, no, there isn't. But uh, the question is, does it cause hate? There was a movie called The Passion of the Christ. Oh, I remember that, yeah. That was Mel Gibson, and, wasn't it? Or no, it wasn't. Yes. Was it? No, it was. I don't remember whether it was or wasn't. I think it might have been. 
But I I'm, don't know who did it, but uh, yeah, Passion yeah, of the Christ Vincent. caused a huge controversy in the Catholic community, that's uh, for sure. I, and in the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. I saw it, and I would say they may not have meant to, but it was anti-Semitic. Really? That's how I found it to be also anti-Italian, because um, they made the Romans look like they were animals, mm. barbarians. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Would a positive review of the death of Klinghoffer sway you one way or the other about going to see it? Uh, no. You would not see it under any circumstances? Uh, not if I had to pay money to see it, no. Oh, okay, but if they because comp you... I don't want to give them any money. Now, you, would... you understand? now, the strangest thing about this is Everybody involved is Jewish. Adams is Jewish? Yeah. It says, uh, yes. I didn't think John Adams was Jewish. The librettist, I I know, is Jewish. Uh, Yes. Goodman, I think her name is? Yes. And Peter Gelb. Yeah. Yeah. So this is weird. But then again, there are Jewish people who aren't always loyal to Jewish people. I'm sure that's occurs in every ethnic group well yeah it does and, and i gotta tell you i you know i'm a big john adams fan i i uh remember like short riding the fast machine and, and some of his work that i really really loved a lot going uh-huh. back like you know uh there, there was a, a a piece he did called christian zeal and activity which is one of my favorite pieces of music um, he wrote an opera called Nixon in China. Nixon in China, which uh, they used they used a piece of it as a theme for a newscast. I can't remember uh-huh. uh, what was it, Chairman uh, Chairman Mao dances or something like that. Anyway, yeah, uh, you know, I, I have been a big fan of his work. I am not, con- con- you know, a- at all conversant with his operatic output, if you know what I mean. But the reviews yeah. I've seen have said that that some of the you know some of the music. To Death of Klinghoffer is absolutely marvelous. Gorgeous music. But what the critics say is that um, it puts Jews in a terrible light, and it puts the, um, the Palestinian terrorists in a better light. See, I, I, you know, I wonder if that's, you know, uh, put it this way. I don't know. I haven't seen it. it. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, I got to run, Harriet. I, I got a okay. couple of stories to do, but thanks so much for calling. Always great to talk with you. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I, I just had to get her sense of, of how that went, because I was, Jason, I got to be honest, I was surprised at the number of positive reviews for Death of Klinghoffer. And apparently, it got a standing ovation Monday night at the Met, which means the people in the audience, who, by the way, started out booing it, ended up at least liking it enough to stand up and cheer for it at the end. Uh, got a couple of other stories. Now, here's why I think people elected Bill de Blasio. And, uh, you know, I give him all the credit in the world for this because uh, there are people who would make the argument that because the people involved in this were friends of his, uh, and I'm talking about, you know, literally friends of his, that it could very easily have gone the other way. Mayor de Blasio ruled out a proposal that would have given, get this, Jason, 
a billion dollar subsidy to J.P. Morgan Chase. That's right. The big monstrosity eggplant that ate Chicago and part of New York, J.C. Morgan Chase. Now, the subsidies were for a new corporate headquarters. Now, if you've been in lower Manhattan, it seems like every every time you cross the street or turn a corner, there's like a mammoth J.P. Morgan Chase building, but I guess they need a new one. The mayor said the proposal for these subsidies was a non-starter. de Blasio said that wasn't a proposal we could live with, end quote. Now, he said smaller tax breaks, we can talk. Uh, what they want to do, by the way, is build office towers on the far west side, probably to take advantage of Hudson Yards, which is the apartment complex that ate Chicago. Uh, what was influent, What was interesting about this influence, his old friend, Harold Ickes, who I've met, uh, was lobbying for Chase. Now, you know, when, when, when friends ask you for favors, even billion-dollar favors, <laughs> okay, uh, people might say, hey, you know, Harold, my man. De Blasio didn't. He said, nah, no. Now, mind you, that's not going to stop Harold Ickes. Anybody that's ever met the man knows he's nothing if not persistent. So he's going to keep on keeping on. He's going to try and get something out of de Blasio. But it's not going to be anywhere near a billion. To be honest with you, Jason, they shouldn't get a dime. As much money as they make. You know, I I mean, some of us have bank accounts at J.P. Morgan Chase. You know, all that money they get from this and that and all these, you know, derivatives and all that. They don't need no money from the taxpayer. And see, that's the thing that gets left out of the media coverage. When they talk about how much undocumented immigrant school children cost, they put it in the context of how much it costs the taxpayers. Oh, my God. I have to pay for them? But when it comes to a billion-dollar subsidy for a big bank, they don't put it in the same context. They don't say it will cost taxpayers a billion dollars. Where do they think these subsidies come from? You think people dream this dough up? <laughs> I wish I could. Hey, Jason, want to want to put our heads together and dream up a billion? Because <laughs> the bottom line is that would come from taxpayers. Okay, now people might make the argument, well, you know, we put a new headquarters, let J.P. Morgan Chase put a new billion-dollar subsidized complex. That's going to, you know, increase the number of jobs, and then there's more taxpayers, but they don't put it in the same context. And I mentioned undocumented kids because apparently a lot of them don't have the ability to go to school out on Long Island because some Long Island school districts kind of have a a, a very difficult set of standards in order to prove residency. And if you can't prove residency, you can't go to school in some of these Long Island districts. The Affordable Care Act is losing its power as a campaign weapon. You know, uh, people have been, uh, uh, not people, politicians, people too, but politicians more than anybody else. They've been running against Obamacare, since the phrase was coined. Oh, it's going to put, we're all going to be broke. Oh, it's going to kill employment. Oh, it's going to do this. Oh, it's it's done nothing like that. 
And the thing is, Obamacare as a bludgeon for Republicans, they've lost it's lost its mojo. It's done. It's finished. It's over. Why? Because some of those same Republicans are benefiting from Obamacare. Quiet as it's kept. Were there glitches in the system? Absolutely. And I, li- I, I really don't like to ask a rhetorical, uh, rhetorical question and answer it myself. But it's true. It's absolutely true. Now, listen, we're almost done. So I have to get to two of the ridiculous. Hey, Jason, do you know what a busker is? A busker is one of these guys who goes in the train and plays an instrument for money. That's a busker. That's a British term, by the way, but somehow American media, like the Daily News and them, they've adopted the term busker. All right. So there was a guy in Brooklyn who apparently was singing or playing an instrument or both on a subway platform. Cops told him, can't play. He told the cops, look, there's a regulation that says I can't. The cop reads the regulation out loud to the guy and then tells him he's still got to go. When the guy didn't go, they busted him. I think they charged him with disorderly conduct or something. This is symptomatic of a larger question slash problem, which we don't have time to get into today. The idea that police, if you're obnoxious or if you're whatever, or if they just don't like the way you look. And by the way, this is not new. They will hassle you. They will bend, shape, and twist the law. They will arrest you for stuff you never even thought about doing because they can. We'll get back to that another day. Jason Taubenfeld, as always, man, great working with you. Thank you so, so much. It's almost 7 o'clock on the east coast of the United States. We're back tomorrow. Not tomorrow. Jeez. We're back next Wednesday, live at 6 o'clock. My name is Mark Riley. This has been the Mark Riley Show. Have yourselves a great rest of the evening and a better week ahead.